And just to say, actually, if you're looking for something um, just for kind of daily readings and you find Proverbs interesting, um, this book by Tim Keller, The Way of Wisdom, is absolutely brilliant and it just gives like a little kind of daily reflection, so Way of Wisdom. Um, Tim Keller. Um, yes, so we are going to jump in and out of quite a few Proverbs this uh, evening and I changed the title about an hour ago so it's now called A Well-Ordered Life. So, um, Shall we pray and then we'll read a few um, and then do some other things. Um, Father we thank you that you're so so good um, and that you have given us everything we need to live a well-ordered life in your word, in the coming of your Holy Spirit and in that person that is you Jesus Christ. So um, Father would you open your word afresh to us this evening. Will you open our hearts and will you take these words for the glory of your name, Lord God. Amen. Amen. Um, so if you just want to um, turn to Proverbs 1, 7, which is page 605, um, then maybe pop a little finger in Proverbs 9, 10, which is page 612, um, and then in Proverbs 23, 17, and that's page uh, 626. And we're going to read those, and then I'll come back to them um, in a little while as we um, do some context stuff and things beforehand. This is very loud, isn't it? It's very weird. There we go. We'll work with it. Great. Okay. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then if you flick to page 612. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And then if you go to page 626, Proverbs 23, verse 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of of the Lord. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. And so this evening, we're going to look at this little phrase, the fear of the Lord. We're going to begin sort of saying the context of Proverbs um, and a little of why it is that we kind of need Proverbs um, as human beings. And then we're going to press into what it means to have a well-ordered life under the fear of the Lord. I thought we'd start with um, a couple of questions. Have you got those, Amy? Brilliant. Okay, so where do you go for advice? Who do you look to for wisdom? And how do you order your life? So should we take a moment on our own to consider and then maybe just turn to the person next to you, have a little think and discussion, and we'll come back to those at the end if you kind of clock them um, as we go through this. So where do you go for advice? Who do you look to for wisdom? And how do you order your life?
Okay, brilliant. Um, just clock what um, maybe you're hearing from each other and your own initial responses. And then when we get to the kind of response time of the sermon, um, we're going to dig into that a little bit deeper. So just clock your discussions in the back of your mind. Um, but if we turn to Proverbs, um, Proverbs is found within a kind of genre called wisdom literature. So the Old Testament has got four genres. You've got the Pentateuch, um, the history books, the prophetic books, and then wisdom literature, which is Proverbs, Song of Songs, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Um, and Proverbs, along with Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes, is presented to us as the wisdom of Solomon. And we think that it was kind of written down during um, the 10th through to the 6th century, which was when um, Israel was really kind of stable as a nation, and they would have had scribes and the ability to, um, to write this stuff out. And at a theological level and a practical level, it speaks to us about what it means to be human actually what it means to walk every day in the world under creator God who has made us and who loves us. And so Proverbs is all based around the picture of wisdom. And Tim spoke about this a little last week. And you find that right at the heart in um, Proverbs 8. And wisdom, the picture of wisdom who is a woman, is a kind of precursor to Jesus Christ. Actually, it's the wisdom of God, the creative energy of God that is offered in Proverbs that then is ultimately revealed in the New Testament in the person of Jesus, who and through God created the world. And on a really practical level, um, it speaks to what it means to be human, actually how to live our everyday lives. So speaks from a very human uh, sort of viewpoint using Hebrew poetry. So there's parallelism and comparison. There's loads of visual images. So wisdom is a woman. It's really, really visceral. And there's images of the city and of the countryside because Israel is um, a rural and a city nation. It's everyday stuff, but it's completely God-centric. It's completely founded on who God is. So if we just turn to a few more Proverbs. As you constantly in Proverbs, um, the picture of the heart springs up. So 4.23, above all, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And then this picture of wisdom that we hear again and again. The wise store up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool invites ruin. And then again and again, there's a picture of justice and the importance of justice to the heartbeat of God. So 13.23, an unplowed field produces food for the poor but injustice sweeps it away. It's about the heart, it's about wisdom, it's about justice, and it's about who we were made to be and how to walk out a life before God in this kind of everyday reality. But actually, Proverbs aren't unique to Israel or even to us as Christians because there's something in the human spirit that seems to kind of cry out for wisdom and for advice. So the, uh, the nations around Israel in the ancient Near East, so uh, Egypt and Babylon, um, etc., they all had Proverbs. And in the modern day, actually, we have Proverbs, don't we? Um, I just had a little Google for modern day Proverbs. So I ended up on BuzzFeed, which gave me these ones. <laughs> the early bird gets the least horrific morning commute. One man's trash is another man's artsy Instagram. A lot of truth in that. Or roads lead to Ikea. There's no place like Whole Foods. Actions speak louder than passive aggressive text messages. How true is that? Um, then I found this blog called hashtag New Solomon. You can't always continue communicate even with everybody. 
be kind to yourself. You can only talk about talking about it for so long. Bit of truth in that. Love yourself. No one else is going to look after number one. Not sure what I think about that. Um, and then we turn to music, don't we? Um, actually, I think music for us is sort of modern day uh, Proverbs language. So it's taken me quite a long time to get Bob Dylan into a sermon. I love Bob Dylan so much. <laughs> uh, so Bob Dylan, the answer is blowing in the wind. Let me tell you, it's blowing a lot. It's blowing. The answer is blowing in the wind. And again, the answer is still um, blowing in the wind. Um, or slightly more modern day. Um, I also love the Chainsmokers. Um, so... You should have known better than to listen to your heart again. It'll change with the weather. Or slightly more crass if you listen to Capital, which I do. Um, Pitbull, let's do it tonight. For all we know, we might not get the morning. Um, I don't know what you think about those, um, but there's something a little bit kind of empty and um, I guess kind of wanting in some of it, isn't there? So the BuzzFeed stuff's a bit light, it's a bit empty. Um, the blogs are a bit self-helpy. Bob's searching for answers all the time, but he hasn't quite got the answer, because what does blowing in the wind actually mean? I'm not sure. Um, Chainsmakers, it's a little bit mistrustful of our humanity, of our heart, isn't it? And then Pitbull is very um, base instinct. Everything's a little insular, it's a little me-centric, it's not totally God-centric. And actually there's nothing about creation, there's nothing about serving um, other people. So what's unique about Israel's Proverbs? What's unique about Israel's Proverbs is that they're all founded on God, they're all founded on Yahweh. And they speak to what it means to be human, but they speak to that by speaking to the character of God and what he has made us to be. Because to be truly human, to live well in this world, is to know God and to live as he's made you. And scripture again and again speaks of us being the clay and him being the potter. Actually, the way that we really know how to live well in this earth is to order our lives under God is to have God-centered lives, not me-centered lives, to um, develop this phrase that comes through Proverbs and actually further into Scripture, which we'll look at in a moment, the fear of the Lord. So um, a guy called David Atkinson puts it like this. He just says, the Proverbs are concerned with practicalities of living in God's world, with life skills, but they assume that all this is rooted in religious life and worship. And so what's the root? Actually, what is this rootedness that David's getting at, the Proverbs are getting at? Well, it's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Um, and that's not just a phrase that is found in Proverbs. I'm going to start to dig into this a little bit. Um, it starts way back in Genesis. So if you know the story of um, Abraham and Isaac, um, where God says to Abraham to bring his only son Isaac before him. And then when Abraham is willing to sacrifice his only son, God says, absolutely not. I do not require that of you. Actually, God's response then to Abraham is, now I know that you fear the Lord. Know that I know you fear the Lord. Or you turn to Isaiah 
And as Isaiah is prophesying the person of Jesus, he says this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, a spirit of counsel and of strength, a spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. And it's in that context that we find Proverbs. Um, Proverbs uses the phrase 12 times. Um, I'll just look at four of them. So, fear of the Lord is about wisdom and relationship, which leads to the fullness of life. So, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And then the fear of the Lord is about character. It's about developing a Christ-like character. So humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. And actually the best thing in life is knowing God. So even when we look at our neighbor who doesn't know the Lord, and we think, gosh, their life looks really good. Proverbs tells us not to envy them. To know that the best thing in life is to fear the Lord and to have this well-ordered life underneath him. So do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. And as we turn um, to the New Testament, um, Luke is brilliant in just picking up this phrase. So um, in the Magnificat, which is um, sort of Mary's song at the beginning of his gospel, Mary exclaims, his mercy is from age to age to those who fear him. His mercy is from age to age to those who fear him. And then in Luke's parable of the unjust judge, Jesus describes the judge as one who neither feared God nor cared for man. Neither feared God nor cared for man. Because part of this right ordering before God, part of this fear of the Lord, is that when we really, really get to know God, and we're reverent before him, and we put him in his rightful place, actually our hearts and our lives change, and we're turned outwards, and we care for humankind, and we care for the creation. And the issue with the judge there was that in not fearing the Lord, he became totally, totally insular, all about himself, and he could no longer care for the world around him. So what exactly is it? Well, it's not a kind of shaky fear, where we're really, really scared, and we're like, oh my goodness, I'm scared so much of God. It is something about reverence, about awe-inspired right place of God, over and against a kind of imprisoning fear. So in Genesis 3, um, where Adam and Eve hide from God after they've eaten um, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord comes to them and says, why are you hiding? And they say, because I was afraid. It's exactly the opposite of that. It's not a fear that imprisons us or binds us up. It's about saying, God, you are the Lord Almighty. And I am so overcome by your majesty that I fear you and I put you um, in your rightful place. I think one of the best images of this is from C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And um, Susan and Mr. Beaver are talking, and they're about to go meet Aslan, and Aslan represents Jesus. And so Susan says to Mr. Beaver, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, I'm so sorry, I've managed to cut and paste the wrong bit. I'm going to turn around. No, that is the right quote, ignore me. I'm so sorry, right, sorry. Mr. Beaver says to Susan, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, 
I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall, see ra I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so we approach God as father, as friend, as saviour. But we also approach him as king, as the Lord Almighty. Knowing that he's a God who's utterly knowable in showing us who he is in the person of Jesus. But he's also a God who is so mysterious and so beyond anything that we can comprehend that he is worthy of all praise and all adoration. And it's probably worth saying that um, in the charismatic tradition, which I've grown up in and which I love, we've really, really rightly emphasized like intimacy with God and adoption and approaching him um, as his kids. And those things are good and right. We've got to not forget that actually he's the Lord Almighty. You know, he's king above all kings. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's the champion of heaven. He's the great I am. He's worthy of all worship. Because everything is sustained through who he is. And everything was created by his hand. And actually what Proverbs is calling us to do at the most fundamental, central level is to let God be God. To allow that God is our all in all. And so God in Proverbs calls us into living God-centric, not me-centric life, which is completely countercultural to the world we um, find ourselves in. You know, if we go back to those BuzzFeed quotes and those blogs, everything around us is saying, it's all about number one, it's all about me and my felt needs and my desires, and, you know, look after yourself. And then when you basically kind of looked after yourself and you figured out what it means to be kind to yourself, which are important things, I'm not suggesting we don't go for self-care, but after you've done all of that, then maybe think about my creation actually God flips all of that on its head and says it's all about him and in ordering our lives correctly under him he will sustain us for the sake of his world um, David Atkinson who I mentioned before actually says you know we have all but lost in our current culture not only a reverence for God but in so doing, for society and its structures, political and sociological. Because actually when we lose a reference for God, and when we lose this idea of the fear of the Lord, actually we lose our reverence for his creation, for humankind. That was what was going on in Luke 18. And when we were looking at our, um, our social justice series before um, Easter, that was what was coming out. Because of the political um, climate that we're in at the moment, austerity, all of that, actually this gap between rich and poor is increasing, increasing, increasing. And actually there's a hardening of hearts. As we step further and further and further into an individualistic culture, we step further and further and further away from the way that the Lord has ordered it from a reference for God and in so doing a reference for each other and for the creation around us. And actually our personal autonomy, which is essentially what sin is, 
which is what happened way back in Genesis 1, 2, 3. It has destructive tendencies that aren't just about us. They're about the world around us. But we're the church. And actually we're a prophetic people. And we're called and we are so able because he dwells richly amongst us to enact something different. And what happens when we cultivate the fear of the Lord? What happens when we say, okay, you're the Lord Almighty. Set my eyes on what you want them to be set on. It's that we don't only develop an appropriate reverence for him, but we do so for his creation, medically, socially, politically. We order our lives well for the sake of his world. I was just thinking about um, one of my friends who um, came to faith in her um, late 20s, um, totally non-Christian family, all of that. And in coming to know God and then just saying, okay, this Christian thing is true and real. I'm going to reorder my life. Like everything changed. Um, so she just suddenly, in a moment, seemed to understand holiness. Um, she was living with her uh, boyfriend at the moment who wasn't a Christian. Um, so she decided to move out onto the couch, and then she decided to move out, move out. Um, and then she suddenly became committed to a local church. Then she suddenly started tithing. I don't even know how she found out about tithing. Um, then she suddenly quit her job and decided to go and work in the charity sector. Um, everything got reordered. And she's a phenomenal woman of God now because she suddenly realized who the Lord was and decided to order her life under the fear of the Lord, under a right reverence. So how do we cultivate it in a society that is kind of post-Christian? Firstly, I'd say there's no, we don't need to fear where we're at as a society at all. Um, all the guys in the New Testament were in exactly the same situation. They were in a pre-Christian um, society that was far more hedonistic than anything that we get up to at the moment, I think, if you look into it properly. Um, so firstly, like we cultivate it through his word. So we read his word and we let it richly dwell in us. And we read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. We have in the person of Jesus the perfect example of what it means to be human. It's right there in the Gospels. So we let it richly dwell in us. We worship him. We do what we've been doing. We worship him in spirit and truth. Um, Tim Keller just says, actually, the fear of the Lord increases the more we admire and praise him in wonder. The more we gather in song, the more we gather in our ones and twos and pray, the more we sit on our own and pray and worship him. We become blown away by who he is. And this stuff just falls into place. I love what it says in Hebrews 12, um, 28 to 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We worship him with reverence and awe because he's a consuming fire. So we get into his word and we worship. And then we walk well and confidently knowing he's with us. So we go back to those first questions. Actually, where do you go for advice? 
would you look to for wisdom? How do you order your life? Ask ourselves, actually, what's our point, um, our starting point in decision-making in the big and the small of everyday life? Is it kind of my feelings and thoughts, or, or is it God's, which are often kind of outwardly focused and sacrificial? Because God will say again and again to us that it's all about him, because it's all about his world. And we take personal holiness seriously. You know, what does his word say? Um, what are we hearing from friends? What are we kind of saying together as a church? What's the spirit doing in our hearts? Or have we been nudged, pulled? And we've got to know that, like, it's a constant discipline. Walking with the Lord well in all of our lives, and I'm preaching to myself here, um, so easily gets squeezed out because we do live in a slightly post-Christian culture and our value system is very different to um, a Christian value system in society at large at the moment. But there's nothing too big for him. He knows all of that. And the New Testament was written by a bunch of people who had exactly the same struggles as us. It makes complete sense to where we are now. And then we face outwards, knowing that we're church and we know this truth for the world outside these four walls. And then at the most fundamental, most grounding level, we're living complete security, knowing that he's called each and every one of us by name. That it's not an accident that we're sitting in these seats, that we're his body, we're his hands and his feet, he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. That he's not going to give us something too big or too hard. That there's grace abounding. And actually when the devil niggles, which he often, often does when you um, plow into messages like this and tries to bind you up in guilt, you just say, absolutely no. It's not about guilt, it's about freedom. Because actually my mate who turned her life around when she became a Christian is so much more free and happy and joyful than she was before. It wasn't a costly thing. At the most fundamental level, it was a freeing thing because God knew her and knows each and every one of us before the creation of the world. And he's a potter and we're the clay and he knows what it means to be Lucy Jaffe in 2017 or be Will and Hearn and walking out our daily life. And he's got it. Tim Keller just ends his book on Proverbs by saying, all the advice for daily living assumes a holy God who nonetheless redeems by grace. We're all redeemed by grace. And that's what undergirds all that we know. And he knows us. But we worship him with reverence and awe because he's a consuming fire, which is glory to God. Okay, I think what we're going to do just wait on the Lord a little bit um, and uh, we'll worship to him. So guys, do you want to stand?